But in that moment, when I realized I never want to need the money again, I started to look at money very differently. It went from being an object of the selfish and the self-obsessed to becoming a vehicle for self-reliance. And that frame of reference changes the feeling. So how you see money determines how you feel about it, and how you feel about it determines what you do with it. That was Terry Condon. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is The Dad Mindset Show. This week, we talk with Terry Condon from the Passive Income Project. Terry is an expert in high-performance coaching and behavior change. After his own personal reset around money, he and the team at Cashflow Co. is helping people transform the way they feel about money and to set the defaults to stack the deck back in your favor, not the other way around. Before we get into the conversation, though, I'd like to thank everyone who has been recommending friends listen to the Dad Mindset podcast and those of you who write reviews and rate the show. It all helps massively. Also, if you'd like to have show notes sent right to your inbox, you can subscribe to the Dad Mindset newsletter on thedadmindset.com. Okay, let's get on with the show. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Terry Condon. Terry Condon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fantastic to see the journey that you and Ryan have been on. Can you give us a bit of a background as to the project? Yeah, so we run a program called The Money Mentorship. And the reason we started it is frankly because I get to a stage in my life where I wanted to make a really big change. And I kind of got to a level in my career that I was happy with, but I looked forward and I looked ahead and I didn't want to be my boss's. I didn't want to be them at all. And I actually saw that my risk was compounding in my career. The longer I would stay in it, the more risky it would become. And I used to work in elite sport and, you know, it's a really sexy career. Everybody thinks it's amazing and it is great when you're young. But what they don't tell you is as you get older, then you get the younger guys coming and nipping on your heels and saying, I'll do this for half the cost and I'll do it every day of the week. And so you actually build your career capital. And as you become really experienced, you become more expendable. Yeah. And nobody tells you that until you start to see it. And that, overli- <laughs> that, that sort of overlaps with starting a family and having less time to throw at it and things like that as well. Exactly right. So, And that was on my horizon. I just met my now wife and I knew that, that her and I were going to end up together and I knew that that's the direction we were going. And I asked myself the question, do I want to be them? And when I say them, it was I'm going to have to pick up my life every two to three years. I'm going to have to try to find a new contract and I'm going to have to keep kind of, I guess, competing against the ocean of people who want to do what I do. And even though I loved that part of it, that, the, the coaching part of what I was doing, loved working with athletes, loved helping them achieve their really big, ambitious dreams and really understood a lot about that whole process, enjoyed that whole journey. I could just see that long, long term, it was going to get harder and harder from, from me. And when it came to the environment, I just, I just got a bit sick of the environment too. A lot of the time, it's a lot of a lot, of, a lot of ego, a lot of power plays in sport, and a lot of the time it's not about sport, <laughs> ironically. So, so I got a bit sick of that, and I was like, I've got to do something different. And I remember walking into an off, walking into a room, and a manager sort of called me in, and he kind of explained to me that they were going to change, you know, there was going to be some restructuring because of some new changes. And actually, I came in as this new job, and I kind of recommended these these things need to change. And it ended up coming back to me and they were like, well, okay, you need to be doing more of this stuff. And I'm like, but that's actually not what I'm here to do. I did that 10 years ago. I came here to get exposure to this. That's kind of what you guys sold me on. And I remember just thinking in that moment, I'm like, I'm not being asked about this. I'm being told and I don't have a choice, but I feel like I have to do it because I feel like I need the money. And that was the moment for me where I thought, I never want to have to need the money again. I always want to have to, I always want to be in the position where I have the choice. And, and that kind of set me on this real kind of rabbit hole, right? Where I was just really understanding, I guess, personal finances and investing and that sort of things. And I'm a pretty obsessive person. So as soon as I get onto something, <laughs> I will take it down to the studs. <laughs> and and oh, I say this all the time, but I've literally stacked up the books that I read when it comes to personal finance and it's taller than I am and I'm not short. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that was great. And I sort of was learning a lot of stuff. And, you know, I was kind of making some progress, but there was a point where I realized there's something I'm missing. I just don't feel like I'm really, it's like not getting that kind of point of traction. And I kind of realized the thing I'm missing, I've been focusing so much on what I want and how money works. I've been completely forgetting how I work with money. 
And that actually turns out to be the most important variable. When you look at the research in personal finance, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not about like what stock you pick or that stuff. It's actually about how you behave with money. And I was like, I actually, I already understand behavior really well. I've been learning about human behavior, goal achievement, discipline, habits, and all this sort of stuff for like 10 years at the highest level. So I just need to apply that to money. And that was kind of rocket fuel for me. So my wife and I sat down. We kind of managed to do just what we hadn't managed to do for sort of two to three years. I think we saved about 50 grand in six months. Didn't change our income or anything. Just really got on top of it. And then I had another problem, which is like what to do with all the extra money. <laughs> and, and then I did the same thing. I was learning intellectually, but I was missing this other key component, which is the emotional side of money. And, you know, I understood that I needed to be investing. I needed to be putting that money to work. But I just couldn't get over that kind of hurdle of like putting my money in somebody else's hands. And that's when I met Ryan. And he introduced me to, I guess, income investing and understanding how the whole thing works and really just simplified everything. Said, look, this is all you need to know. There's a whole lot of information out there. But actually, what it all boils down to is this. And once you understand this, then you can actually start building income that's separate from your work. And that is what allowed me to kind of turn around. And I, once I got that money to work, I kind of realized, like, man, I don't actually have to work for a couple of years if I don't want to. So <laughs> I just sort of worked out what my runway was, and I was like, I don't need to be here. And so I quit. <laughs> and then, you know, I went out into consulting, went through business school, learned how to, I guess, learn how to present, learn how to communicate and get my ideas across because I understood that I had built a very specific set of skills in sport, but being able to translate that into different contexts required another skill set. And so I went into consulting to really understand and learn how that, that worked. And along the way, Ryan and, and I kept in touch. And these kind of seeds started to germinate around, like, how, how could we combine our skill sets? Because he had this really specialized knowledge and this really in-depth understanding of how money works. And I had this very in-depth understanding of how humans worked. And we were like, if we could put those together and figure out how humans work with money and then be able to teach that to people, we can help them do big things. And so that's where the cash flow code was born. Wow. It's like the power couple, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's all in the, in the best possible sense, Terry. I mean, can you talk about how how we feel about money is so much more important than about how we think about money? Yeah, it's a that's a big one. I think you know, just from a biological perspective, how the body works and how the brain works and how we process information. We make decisions from the limbic part of our brain and then we justify it with our neocortex and the logic and the rational, <laughs> everything that kind of comes in afterwards, right? So you love to tell yourself that you bought the Mercedes because it's the safest car, <laughs> right? It's the safest car. That's and right. I'm going to have to spend less on it down the road when it comes to maintenance and all that sort of stuff. The emotional decision was made well before that fact. Yeah. <laughs> so understanding how that works is really important. And when it comes to money, that feeling determines whether you lean into it or whether you lean out of it. And I think the most important thing to realize is, for me, when I walked into that office and I walked into that room, you know, my frame of reference when it came to money was money is this kind of annoying thing that I don't have to think about. It's this kind of black box and only smart, evil, clever people understand it and I'm not one of them. I'm just a good hard worker and I do my job and I'm going to be looked after. That was my frame of reference when it came to money. But in that moment when I realized I never want to need the money again. I started to look at money very differently. It went from being an object of the selfish and the self-obsessed to becoming a vehicle for self-reliance. And that frame of reference changes the feeling. So how you see money determines how you feel about it and how you feel about it determines what you do with it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of the language that we use or we experience as we're growing up? Because I think a lot of that gets baked in, doesn't it, when we're kids? 100%. This is huge, and it's probably we'll get to this later on. We talk about you know dads and couples and why and how this matters. But you know, you just think about what you heard, what you what you heard, what you saw, what you felt when you were young. And for me, why did I think of money as a, as something of like the selfish and the self obsessed? And why did I sort of see it as this icky, dirty thing? It's probably because whenever I heard about money, whenever I was coming into contact with the idea of money when I was younger, it's always a stressful situation. It's a bill's coming in and mum and dad are kind of fighting about what they're going to do about it, why the bill's that big. You know, it's your kids are expensive. You know, everything you do costs money. You know, it's a burden, all that sort of stuff and the fault of that. So all, that, so all the feelings around money, they're not positive. Yeah. They're negative. And that gets baked into your nervous system. So as soon as I use the word money, if you're listening to me right now, whenever I say money, 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 
there's associations that happen in your brain and that's like a ripple effect. And what happens is your body, time travels back to your first experiences and there's an imprint and that imprint determines what you're going to do. Are you going to lean away or are you going to lean in? And the difference is whether you actually achieve your goals or whether you actually don't. Yeah, because you can imagine the sort of conversations that occur around a table of, say, a blue-collar worker family. Mm. And, you know, they're just above the poverty line, so to speak. So yep. they're just about paying the bills. But, they, you know, they might have a repair come up for the car mm-hmm. or the house or something mm-hmm. that's, that they haven't budgeted for. That yep. puts them in a whole bunch of distress. Yeah. Whereas you, you compare that to, say, a middle-class family where the, they run a business yeah. and that's been part of a broader family business and they're constantly lo- looking for managing other business. You know, they're, yeah. they're, the conversations would be completely different. The, the experience as children being surrounded by the different types of challenges and problems that those families would talk about yeah. would be completely different, you think? Absolutely. And uh, there's, there's four sort of unconscious jobs that we give money. And really, this is just observation from my point of view. You know, we talked about feeling and doing, right? And if you feel about it in a certain way, if you sort of loathe money, if you lean away from money, what can tend to happen is you'll go in one of two directions. And so you'll look at money as like, help me survive. So you'll see it as like a basic necessity. And so in that first example you gave, I would say that the frame of reference, if you grew up in a house like that, then you kind of get the idea that money is just this bloody annoying thing you have to have to survive. And so you give the money the job of helping me survive. And you never think about it any other way. So that makes it very hard to manage it any other way. Then conversely, you can think about it the other way. And you can think about money's job as security. Money's got to keep us safe. And most people don't understand what unconscious jobs we're giving money. And so those, those frames of reference really start to dictate, I guess, our financial destiny, really, right? That's how I used to see money. I used to see money as security and safety. And on some level, I still do. Um, But you need to be able to, I guess, transcend that, get beyond that kind of patterning, that conditioning. And you don't do it by talking it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you do it? Yeah, you actually need to accumulate new evidence that invalidates all those old ideas. Wow, that's a big job. It's a big job, but it's actually an awesome opportunity at the same time. Like yeah. we've seen people do unbelievable things just by changing that frame of reference, building new evidence. Updating their, their operating yeah. system, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So you just need small wins that you can build on, right, that start to slowly chip away at those ideas. Yeah. Well, I'm not the kind of person that does this, and then you do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you do that again, you do it bigger. And then more importantly, you put yourself in a space and a community and an environment where people like you are doing things you don't think you can do. Yeah. And as soon as you sit in a room with someone who's you identify with, you go, that person's just like me, but they're actually not limited at all when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then you find out that they used to be, you start to go, why can't I do that? Whereas if you put yourself in the situation where everyone's whinging about not getting paid enough and, yeah. you know, like, oh, the yeah. boss is this and that, it's chalk and cheese as to what you can do. And you see money as like this, this enabler. I had a friend that started EcoStore. Yep. And he said it was when he reframed the the money around energy and yep. thought of it as like, it's an, it enables me to do things because it's like, it's energy. Mm-hmm. It, his business transformed. Yeah. Because he had, you know, those hangups. I think that's such a powerful one as well. Um, Vicky Rubin was the first person who came up with that. And if you're a reader, listen to, the, uh, listen to or read the book, Your Money or Your Life. Yeah. And she talked about life energy and saying, you're trading your life energy for this thing called money. So think about it like you're literally pouring life energy into it. And how you use that determines whether that energy expands or it contracts. And it, it actually just comes back to, like, are you producing more than you're consuming? And are you contributing more? And then are you being a wise custodian of that money? Because if you do, then it'll expand. Yeah. And though that expansion of that energy actually expands the choices in your life. Yeah. And it's interesting, that whole idea of you can't just sit on it either, can you? Like, it no. doesn't like to sit still. That's why but, I call it currency. Yeah. It's got to move. It needs to move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much to unpack. <laughs> so how can we actually then break this pattern, Terry? What's the, what's the first step? Yeah, I think the first thing is I guess you've got to realize the opportunity cost of staying the same. And like I'll come back to my story again. In that moment, I realized what the opportunity cost was. Like how old were you at that point? Uh, I think I would have been, might have been like 28, yeah. I think, something like that. So I think in that moment it was, hang on you haven't valued this and this is what it is costing you. And if it continues, 
what will it cost you? Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the Dickens method, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, present, yeah, future. Yeah, yeah. You go into the future and you play it out. Keep playing it out. Because what we're really good at as humans is pushing psychic pain out of the present. I'll deal with it in the future. Yeah. <laughs> future me is going to figure this out. They're a way better, smarter <laughs> version of me. They've got all their shit together. All right. Or future others going to figure this out. I'm going to come across somebody else. They're going to solve this problem for me. And you're really good at kind of saying, you know, this this has hurt me in the past, but it won't hurt me in the future. Um, it's hurting right now, but I'll figure it out in the future. It's because it feels yeah. more painful to make the effort, isn't it? Like we're, we're such lazy, I think, or should we say? Lazy like, brilliant. Homeo, yeah, homeostatic. We, yeah. we don't like change. Yeah. And if we can put something off, then that's going to be great because it feels like pain or there's a chance for failure yeah. or risk. That's right. And like, that's why I think it's so important to, I guess, lean into and let yourself feel that discomfort because you will just keep pushing it into the future. And that is, yeah, we just need it to be more uncomfortable to stay the same than it is to change. And I love what we talked about earlier, you know, yeah. that, you know, what would your future self plead with you to do today? Yeah, that's right. Because that makes yeah. it almost like, oh, shit, I can actually relate to that future me yeah. and I don't want to be there. It's yeah. like that, the regrets of the dying, Bronnie yeah. Ware, yeah. she talks about that. Like, yeah. w- w- you've talked about that on your podcast. Like, what is one of the biggest regrets? It's always the same regret. It's it's pretty common. I think it's um I wish I lived a life truer to myself, not what others expected of me. And that really does talk to obligation and the concept of like, oh, I need the money. I got to do this. I'm going to work for you kids to be able to do this. Yeah. You know. And what do you think that says to your kids? <laughs> not good stuff. <laughs> it's not good stuff, right? What are they? What What are they going to grow up feeling and thinking about? becoming an adult. Oh, it's exactly I'd the rather same. not. We, we just recreate the cycle again yeah. and again and again. Yeah. It's so for me, like there's a real, <laughs> I always say this when I jump on calls with couples, I'm like, there's a real perverted kind of part of me that loves the secondary effect of what you guys are about to do. <laughs> and they go, what's that? And I said, when you guys start to learn some of these skills and tools and you start to establish these habits and you have these really constructive conversations around money, what's going to happen is your kids are going to see that. And as they see that, they're going to get curious. And they're going to say, what are you guys talking about? And I say, I can tell you this for sure because that's exactly what happens with myself and my wife. They come in and they say, what are you guys doing? And we say, we're money mapping. And they're like, what's that? And we're like, well, what we're doing is we're figuring out what we have and what we want it to do for us this month, how much we want to be able to do the things that are important to us, and also what we need to be able to cover to keep the lights on. And then also for the longer, longer term, how are we going to be setting ourselves up in that way? <laughs> and so the value of you sitting down and doing that in a measured way. In front of the kids. It's the most important thing because mm. you're literally breaking that cycle. Yeah. Um, and now, I'm not to say that you're always going to have happy, rosy conversations about money. You never have conflict. But what you have is you have constructive conflict because you have a higher purpose for the money that you've established together. You have like clear terms of reference mm. that you're discussing and describing. So we're on the same page. Same language. Same language. Super important. So I, when I say a word, you know exactly what that word means. Yeah. There's no, we're not misunderstanding. And then you have a system, a rhythm, and a shared way of working together. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of couples go wrong. Well, it's interesting when you say that, Terry, because when you think about it, it's hard enough individually to get your act together financially, like to do all this work. If you put two people together with a shared sort of debt obligation, like a house or something, all of a sudden you've got this pressure to Mm -hmm. pay bills, Mm -hmm. and then you've got two individual personalities and two individual i guess mental models as to what money is mm-hmm. so you know so if you see money as security and i see it as um satisfaction of my desires or just survival right the way you want to just instinctively reactively use money is different to me <laughs> which is not a recipe for no. epic conversations over the dinner table <laughs> yeah yeah and that's where a lot of people live yeah when they you say or they the word shut, money. Or they just shut up about money because they know it's going to yeah. get a rise out of their partner or something. Yeah. So you see two things, right? Either someone starts to dominate that conversation, the other person feels resentful. And they just back off. Yeah. And they just go, oh, I guess we have to do it his way or her way or whatever. Um, or you do it the other way, both people just do nothing. And they just kind of muddle through. And this happens a lot, particularly when kids come in, because it just starts to complicate things. There's more layers, there's more moving parts, and it just feels exhausting. Yeah. And the problem is that you're trying to, I guess, negotiate every situation like it's unique, and they're not. Yeah. And so if you don't do the front-end thinking and you really establish those clear terms of reference, you have a higher purpose for the money, and then you have a shared way of working around it, then 
every time a situation comes up, guess what you feel? Just exhausted because everybody's exhausted anyway. Yeah. Or you, you haven't pre-discussed <laughs> yeah. the spends. Exactly And right. all of a sudden, like one of you spends on, say, servicing something because yeah. that's actually going to save thing, money in the future. Yeah. Or there's like, oh, why did you blow all that money on that? Yeah. And then there's that danger to step over that line of making sort of – accusations around, oh, you've been yeah. splurging when we're trying to save and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But that challenge is also the opportunity too. So frequently when we sort of talk to people, what you find is like people have different biases around how they process the idea of money and how to think about it. So I'll give an example of this. My bias is long-term, slow, big decisions um, and really kind of having that direction, that bigger picture sorted. And I have just a blind spot when it comes to like how to like how to think about it now. My wife's really good at making that stuff happen. So if we're operating what in silos. What would be an example? How'd you, what yeah, you so for example, um, the investing decisions that we need to be making. I'm yeah. the one that does all the work to yeah, kind of yeah. think through all that sort of stuff and thinking about where we need to channel excess income and how that's going to free things up for us and where we're going to be at different stages of our life. So I'm doing that thinking. So I'm holding the mental load of our future, right? And my wife is holding the mental load of our present, making the house work. And so if we don't collaborate on that, and we're operating in silos. We just see the other person. She probably looks at me like an airhead. <laughs> and I look like her. Look at her like she's just spending willy-nilly. And we don't actually see how both of our ways of thinking can improve our ability to make good decisions because both of them are strengths. And if you are just kind of – I think this, I see this a lot where someone says, he's better at that. He just does that. I just let him sort of take care of it. Yeah. And there's this concept of mental load. You've probably heard of it. But I think it's Eve Rodsky, great book called A Fair Play. And that kind of really, that really got me started to think about like this concept of mental load. Like women hold a lot of mental load around the home. They're thinking forward all the time. They're thinking ahead just because they hold that more of an, it's a bit of a stereotype, but they hold that kind of that more nurturing role. So they're planning, they're conceiving and they're executing in that way. And and us men at times, we can just take on the more transactional jobs where it's like, oh, you want the bins taken out? Good stuff. None of that requires me to think ahead. And so... It, what happens is you get exhausted from holding mental load if you don't share it effectively. And that happens a lot when it comes to money. So if one person is just man- managing all the present and they're kind of trying to start, sort of th- start to think about all that and it's all coming to them reactively, another person's over here, then we're both pissed off. <laughs> None of us are happy. Yeah. We don't collaborate effectively. And then we start to flip from silence to violence. I'm like pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. I'm going to blow up. And they just burst out. And then whatever I blow up about is actually just like the smallest thing. And, but, but the thing then, you sort of, you, you lock it down and then there's more reluctance to in future yeah, talk right. about it proactively. Yeah. And so yeah. you've really got to step out of that. And it reminds me of what a friend said years ago. We'd been going through some stuff about changing jobs and, and my role in my previous company had sort of closed down. And, mm. and it was like, okay, how do we pivot? And we were talking about Sarah getting a job interstate to sort of work and so on. And um, Shona actually said, okay, you know how much guys think about sex, right? And I, yeah, I'm quite aware of that. <laughs> just, well, women generally think about financial security about the same amount. And it blew my mind. I was like, holy smoke, are you kidding me? Yeah. You guys think about financial security that much? Yeah. And it just, it was an interest. it was a complete reframe for me. I was like, wow, okay. Because mm. my, I guess my capacity or comfort with risk was much higher yeah, uh, or, or leaving things longer before fully worrying about it Yeah, because I felt like, you know, I can actually turn things around pretty quick yeah. When, yeah. when, you know, it gets serious. Mm. Whereas I think not recognizing at the time, because Sarah and I were newlyweds, that Sarah's comfort threshold was way, way, way earlier than mine. Yeah. And and so it's even knowing and, and teasing apart those sort of things as a couple as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Different preferences when it comes to risk and uncertainty and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's why it's so important to be able to sit down, forget about money for a second and just ask yourself what the money's for. What does it have to do for us to make our lives better? You know, you probably heard that saying, right? Like man works hard his whole life climbing a ladder and then he realizes it's leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah. You see that a lot in finances because if you don't actually know what the money's for, then what you tend to do is optimize for one thing, more. Yeah. Whatever more is, more equals better. And that's actually not the case. Like we've worked with folks that have way more money than most people ever hope to have. Doesn't mean they're less stressed. And sometimes there's a bigger sunk cost and they realize, actually what I traded to get here wasn't worth it. 
Yeah, it's so much about families, don't you? Like, no one wishes they'd spent more time in the office. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of take that the other way and be like, you know, demonise work and that sort of thing. So, but I don't think that's healthy either. I think it's really understanding what a rich life is to you. Yeah. At a really granular level, not a vague aspiration like, I want to retire early. Yeah. That's very vague. And what I see people doing is, and I love the fire movement, right? Financial independence retire. What I love about it is people starting, starting to take responsibility. Where we start to see people go wrong is we say, it's all about retiring early. And then you just lock onto some, a, just some arbitrary number, <laughs> right? That you pull out of somewhere, you probably run a few calculations and you go, when I get to that number, my life's going to start. <laughs> It's not good because when you think historically, most people used to die about six months after they retired anyway. So maybe let's not head straight out there. But it's really dangerous because what happens is there's an actual term for this, but money starts to prime us in a very uh, unhelpful way. It starts to narrow our thinking and it reduces our ability to solve complex sort of problems in a collaborative way. And so as soon as you are primed to think about money, you'll start to be more independent in that way. There's some research, Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner for behavioral economics. And there's a study in his work. And there's a great book that he wrote called Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and this, this was a very big part of our journey as well, understanding this part of it. And in this study, they prime these people to think about money. And so they obviously had a control where they weren't, weren't primed to think about that. And then after they were primed to think about money, they watched people's behavior and they, they moved them into this room. In this room... The first task was that they had to sort of set themselves up in a circle. And they noticed that when they prime people to think about money, they set themselves up in a much bigger circle further away from others. And also when facilitators would walk past, they'd actually start to do things like they'd drop a pencil and that sort of thing. And the likelihood that you would actually pick up the pencil and help that person actually drops when I prime you to think about money. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So you think like we're up against this, you know, we're up against this. We've got these kind of negative reactions when it comes to it because I guess we've been conditioned to think that um, it's a zero sum. If you've got more, I've got less. And so you start to think more independently and you start to think more competitively. And I see that a lot in these environments. People get fixated on this number and then you start to compete around this number. And there's something called mimetic desire, which I think, it's one of the most powerful ideas that I've come across. And it's the idea that actually your wants, you actually take your cues from others as to what to want. So if you're in, a, if you're in an environment where other people are kind of shining a light on this mythical number and you start to want the same number, yeah. now you start to see them not as compatriots or comrades. You start to see them as competitors and you start to find yourself in these situations. Think Instagram. Yeah. yeah. So what do you see? You start to see people tearing each other down. It's like, you're up there, I'm going to drag you down. Now we're, in, now we're in these like short-term instant gratification status games. And it's a huge distraction and none of it's got to do with wealth. Can you talk to us about the myth of retirement? I mean, because that's a, a big part of what you guys discuss, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you really go back and look at the history of it, <laughs> the whole concept of a retirement, it was a strategic move by a politician. <laughs> his name was Bismarck. He was a German. And he had gotten to a certain stage. He had big ambitions in his political career. And he realized that his elder statesmen were just outsmarting him at every turn. <laughs> They're just better than him, right? And so what he did is he came up with this law where he's like, how about we put you guys out to pasture? <laughs> how about we look after you so you can, like, piss off? <laughs> Get out of my way. <laughs> right. And then um, this idea just took hold. And it kind of just spread. Uh, Americans went over, they saw that, we'll bring it back to America. If the Americans are doing it, then the English will do it. It's created all this kind of idea that like, you know, life begins at retirement. So I guess I've got to like speed up retirement. Instead of actually trying to find a way to feel wealthy now on the road to actually achieving all your goals, you know, that's actually for us the biggest thing, right? It's a flip. You know, we're all conditioned to think that like uh, when you're successful, then you'll be happy, but it's actually happiness that leads to success. Yeah. Um, and I hate the word happiness. So let's call it fulfillment. If you actually find fulfillment in the journey, you will be successful because what happens is you will stick to the path. But if you're always looking at this mirage, it's 10 steps ahead, then it's 10 steps ahead. You feel like you're failing every single day. So what do you start to do? You start to compete with other people. You start to try to tear them down. And you're in this really negative kind of spiral type relationship with yourself and money. Yeah. Whereas uh, counter to that, you can actually be much more comfortable, much more... Yeah self-fulfilled and yeah. and things happen in a much better way when you're in that space like yeah. you're open to serendipity yeah. you know having conversations with random people and and 
awesome things springing up from that. Yeah. It, when you're not in that sort of hold on to all the resources at all costs. Yeah, you know, and I find it it's always so interesting when we do this first session with the couples that we work with is um, we sit down and we actually we facilitate this session. We say, what's the money for? And people struggle so much, you know, because it's so easy to be busy and just be like, just, oh, you know, just uh, just a bigger, bigger house and just, you know, the, the $3 million and that sort of thing. And we're like, that's not good enough. What we want to know is the shared values that you, got. you guys got together for a reason, right? So when you got together, there was some sort of thing that clicked. You resonated on some level about an idea you both had. And you've probably spoken about it in passing, in corridor conversations, in those like five to 10 minutes a night when you're not too exhausted, all right? You've had those conversations. We want to take it from that vague ambition. We want to turn it into a clear and concrete vision because once you have a vision, you can actually reverse engineer what systems and structures you need to be able to make that happen. And that goes back to your coaching background, doesn't it? We're much better at once we visualize something, we can actually – our brain's like a – it's an answering machine. You ask it good questions and it'll get you there. You've got to have a compelling place to get to. Yeah. There's a great book called Psycho-Cybernetics and it's actually the source of most – sort of popular psychology self-help books. It actually just comes back to this one idea, and it's the idea that your brain is a cybernetic organism, and it's great at solving problems. So if I said to you right now, um, I'm going to tell you a riddle, and once, once I finish telling you this riddle, I want you to try to figure it out over the next little bit of my answers, you would just be obsessed with trying to figure out what that is. And, you would act, and actually, if you're listening to this right now, you're probably wondering what the riddle was. Yeah. <laughs> and that's proof that your brain wants to solve problems. Yeah. And so if you don't give it a problem to solve that's constructive in your life, then guess what you solve? Destructive problems. Yeah. So what we're trying to do... Well, especially when you, if you have like negative self-talk, like, yep. oh, why do I keep stuffing up? Or why can't I get my finances in order? Like all these like non-answerable questions. Yeah. But um, the brain just goes in this like you know, self-destructing loop. Yeah. But if you get that right and you sit back and you actually do define wealth for yourself then you know, you've probably heard this term. It's a little bit cliche now, but it's like inner scorecard. Hmm. Inner yeah. scorecard versus outer scorecard. Outer scorecard is what everybody sees. Well, it's Charlie Munger, isn't it? He talks about this. Exactly right. So, And I love that idea, but no one ever tells anyone how to do that. Yeah. And so if you don't develop your own internal frame of reference for success, then you will take your cues from outside of yourself. You will start to look at others, compare, compete, and what happens is you get tracked in these directions, careers, jobs, You're winning at someone else's, someone else's game. Yeah. You're getting rich, but you're moving away from wealth. Mm. You're the investment banker that hasn't seen his kids for three months and he's a millionaire. Yeah. But he's about to get divorced. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) And so it's so important to be able to sit down, map out, and actually articulate what are those shared values. And back to your question before around collaboration. If you do this correctly, what you're going to find is like some clear themes that matter. Yeah. All right? And what is it? It's usually like more time together with outdoor adventures with the family. That might be one. All right? Another one would be being involved in all the extracurricular activities and being active participant in that. Once you see what the values are, you can then rank them. It's like the, the big rocks in the jar, isn't it? The big rock. Make sure you get the big ones in there first. Yeah. Because if you fill it with the little ones, yeah. you're not going to get the big ones in. And you're essentially, when you, what you're doing when you do this is you're giving money a bigger job. Yeah. And if you don't give money a job, it finds jobs all on its own. And it usually doesn't reflect those or, dreams. It reflects your or desires. Or some, someone else finds a job for your money. Exactly <laughs> Which right. is like every, it's the whole market is stacked against us, essentially. It's so much easier to buy things. You know, just get off your phone at 7.30 at night. You'll make better decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. I'll make you rich. Just turn your phone off as soon as you get home. <laughs> you see that a lot. But, yeah, it's so important because if you do understand what those shared values are together and you can articulate them, then you can rank them. And now when decisions come your way, you actually have a framework to think through those decisions and you're not thinking about it from scratch. Yeah. You're saying the most important thing to us is this. Yeah. It's adventures with the family. Okay. Yeah. And so if that play comes along and we really want to watch that play, but it's, it's a choice between this and that, we kind of know what to choose. Yeah. Because um, you've done the work up front to actually prioritize that. Whereas if you do it ad hoc, you're always going to be sort of a little bit out of control. Exhausted. And yeah, and, yeah. and the cognitive load as yeah. well to keep making those decisions and negotiate. Yeah. And That's the trick. Never negotiate when you're exhausted. Yeah. 
Oh. And you're exhausted all or the time. <laughs> yeah, when you're parent. I mean, because you're a recent parent as well. Like, yeah, I've got I mean, two and a half year old twins. Oh, we man. went whack, whack, done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smoke. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, so this whole sleep deprivation thing, how's it going, Terry? <laughs> uh, it's okay. No. Um, you're right. They're, pre- they're, pretty, they're pretty good. But that, look, it really is true. You're just more tired. And, and you've probably seen the research. Like, objectively, in terms of well being, your well being goes down. This is what I find ironic about being a parent. I go, yeah. you're going to be exhausted 99% of the times but your meaning in your life goes up. So you can actually have two happen at once. Like my well-being has dropped since we've had kids. I just don't have as much time to myself, all that sort of stuff. But the meaning in my life is just, it's not even comparable. That's right, yeah. You know? And if you said to me, just could you go back and do it the other way? It's such an it's – not, it's not that you're a better person if you have a parent, but for me, with the kids and not without the kids, yeah, it's just more empty without them. Totally. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case if you never had kids because you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have the two reference points, if that makes sense. So I think you yeah. can have a full life without kids. Um, but if you do have kids and you think about life without them, you just – Well, it, yeah. it, it sort of it, – it takes away that sort of worry about the sleep deprivation and everything yeah. because it's counteracted with the, the, the upside. Yeah. So they, they balance out. And then you've also got the long-term view as well. Yeah. So I think you, you, know, you, you could justifiably say that on balance – we're actually ahead, yeah. even though we feel marginally behind. <laughs> and there's a, good, there's a good lot of research too. And I used to stress about this before I had the kids. was like, oh, you set up enough and you need to be in a good position. Yeah. But what tends to happen is because you've got a purpose outside of yourself, your means expand. Yeah. And, and it's easier to make yeah. those decisions where you're maybe not going down the pub on a Friday night or you're not doing that thing that you normally might do that is actually oh I just actually found it the best excuse I never enjoyed it anyway <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. A, yeah okay cool I can't do it now <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I, like it might be once a year we're actually find myself in a social situation I would have been in when I was like without the kids and stuff and I go yeah I remember what I don't miss yeah, yeah. I couldn't <laughs> agree more yeah. now so with the young family two and a half year old twins yeah what sort of things are you thinking about now, Terry, as to how you're going to actually manage building the environment for them? I guess one of the most important things for me early days, and I wouldn't recommend this, by the way, but we started the business at the same time we had the kids. <laughs> and um, so Elise is self-employed too, and I'm starting a business. Yeah. So like we're drawing down for a few months while that happens. And I made a very conscious decision that I was okay with that because with twins, it was a pretty complicated birth for Elise as well. So she actually needed a lot more help. And um, I just realized, uh, you know, her background is um, therapy and healing and that sort of stuff. So I've actually been very influenced by her as well in terms of my understanding of and people and uh, I guess the problems that can develop uh, throughout your life. And I understood that actually the first six months is critical for building those really strong bonds and a sense of security and healthy attachment with the little ones. Yeah. And so I prioritized uh, being around. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that cost me money. It probably cost me over a hundred grand, um, but I'm okay with that because I'm not trying to win someone else's race. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I know in, what my any scorecard. I know what my wealth definition of wealth is, and it's not. I got rich. My kids hated me. Acted out when they were 21. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess uh, in in terms of that environment, the thing that I want to cultivate and the thing that I've worked towards for my own life is building a life and a lifestyle where. Uh, if I want to be involved, I can be as, as much or as little involved as I need to be. And if something happens, I can be there at the drop of a hat. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't have restrictions around that sort of thing. Like I said, never want to need the money. Yeah. And so that's what I've done. I've built a life that allows me those choices. And that, that for me means that, you know, next week I'm going to go to the kids' swimming lesson at Thursday, you know, 11.30 a.m. And I've got that booked in and I've got it booked in. I actually used to do it every week. I've kind of dropped back to once or twice a week now. Yeah. Because my wife said to me, it's actually, it's she good when you, in. she's like, <laughs> it's good when you go away from it and then come back because then the kids are like, oh, I'm going to try really hard today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's like, but if you're around every week, they kind of get used to it. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's interesting though because during COVID, like I never used to drop the kids off at school because yeah. I'd always be at work before school. Yeah. And then during COVID, it's sort of working from home. It's like, yeah, I'll take yeah. the kids. And I really fell in love with it. Yeah. It's like one of the best times because it's early in the morning. No one's cranky. Yeah. Or at least not until we argue about Spotify. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, the conversations were great. And you yeah. get that. Sometimes you get one-on-one time with them mm. as well. Mm. And there's something about being side by side with a child looking out the window. And the conversations are so much richer. Yeah. And, and that's something that I, I don't want to give up. It's yeah. actually 
gold. That's the stuff that you oh. don't want to be sacrificing. I mean, what's the money for anyway? Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. So why do you have to wait 30 years for it to compound in the market for one day to feel rich so you can get you know get to that number that everybody was shooting They're for? They're not going to want to hang out with you then <laughs> if you've not put the time in early on. And I think that's the sacrifice that is so easy to make yeah. without thinking about it and you've massively regret it later. Yeah, there's two things for me. It's those things. It's that flexibility and it's actually mornings as well. And so – that whole concept of like rushing off to be somewhere else and somebody else's calendar and like that pressure. I don't, I don't think it's all bad, but I wanted a life where I was like, Hey, look, if I want to take the extra hour, so my, my little daughter, um, she just loves me to push her on the swing. Right. And so she'll come up to me, uh, most mornings and she'll do this cute little whisper in, the, in my ear. She'll be like, can you tell, come outside and push me on the swing and don't tell me. That's cool. And I love being able to say yes to that, yeah. not worrying about, oh, okay, but I've got to be here at this time, yeah. that sort of thing. And so I've designed and built my lifestyle around that right now. I don't need to be anywhere in my business before 10 o'clock. Yeah. Does it mean I'm never there before 10? No. Sometimes actually I'm at 5 o'clock. I've probably done a couple hours before this. Yeah. But when the kids are up in that period in the morning, I know that it's less stress for Elise, that if I can help, um, but I also know that there's some golden moments in there for me Yeah. Um, around that. So. Just those are small things. And you're building up those yeah. those times where you say yes. Because it's yeah. so easy as a parent to just say no all the time. Yeah. Or give me five minutes in 10 minutes or yeah. maybe tomorrow. Yeah. And the more of those you put in the bank, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. – it just eats away at that opportunity yeah. to build that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like you. I often find myself getting up at, say, five. Yeah. And you knock out so much better work then anyway, anyway. Or, or staying up late yeah. when the house is quiet. Yeah. Knock out loads of it. There was a time when I was so – I was actually waking up in the middle of the night because yeah. I'd fallen asleep reading bedtime stories at like eight. Yes. I'd wake up at one. I'd do mega work until three because there was zero distractions going on. Yeah. yeah. And then I'd have another few hours. You're like me. Wake up fresh. Mm. <laughs> like, so yeah, I'm really like that too. Being able to pick and choose when you yeah. drop into like focus mode is really useful and not having yeah. to stick within like a nine to five. Bracket. Yeah. And I, just to clarify, I don't think it's all about, you know, I'm the boss and I can do everything I want because there's, a, there's still a struggle. And the struggle is, you know, you can see your results in your career and in a business are very tightly coupled. So if I make changes A, B and C, I literally can see the difference sometimes the next day. That's addictive. Yeah. Because those feedback loops are so tight. When you invest that 20 minutes with your daughter every 20, uh, every second day or every day, actually, you're going to see the benefits of that when she's 22. Yeah. And so the struggle you that I have now- You the feedback loop, yeah. Yeah. So the struggle that I have is a different one. And it's easy for me to get addicted to progress in the business because I can see it, <laughs> right? So I'm not trying to sort of, uh, I guess, like lionize this whole thing of like, oh, yeah, you just do everything for yourself. You'll be sweet. Uh, There's different struggles that you have, and I don't think it's all about nine to five versus this. I just am trying to explain that the, the couple of markers that I made, I was like, I want to be able to do the extracurricular stuff, and I want to not rush in the mornings. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. You can you can achieve all that in, in very different conditions, different circumstances, and, and I, I'm not going to sit up here and say I'm the perfect parent. <laughs> I'm getting this right sometimes. I'm getting this wrong sometimes because – Progress is addictive. Yeah. Progress is so addictive. Especially when you have those quick feedback mechanisms. Yeah. yeah. It's a great book. I think the thing that clued me onto that, and I, that I keep it in my mind, is uh, it was Clayton Christensen. He wrote a book called uh, How Will You Measure Your Life? And um, great book. Great book. Because he actually talked about, he was a Harvard Business School professor, and he actually said, look, I just see these talented, smart people come through and I watch what happens in the trajectory of their lives. And he says, I can see people's lives and I can literally see the path they're taking. And I've been on both sides of it. And that one of the big points he made is like, careful getting addicted to short-term wins yeah. at the expense of long-term investments. Yeah. And so, again- we, we know meaning is normally attached to long-term yeah. Yeah, rather than the short-term stuff. Yeah. And it's a, very, it's a very financial concept, right? You actually want to do the things that compound- Hmm. not the quick win right now. So I keep reminding myself in that, in this sort of the tension between the business and, and, and my personal life. And like I said, I don't nail it every day, but just having that as a kind of reference point really does help me. Well, I think that's a really good term to even say, like I don't nail it every day yeah. because when you hold yourself to the, like the Instagram sort of metric, yeah. you, you just beat yourself up. Whereas if yeah. you know that it's going to be like a roller coaster, some days I'm going to have to apply myself over on the business 
all go away on work trips and things like that. But yeah. that's okay because then I'm going to balance that out with spending time on a trip with the family. Yeah. And, and I think it's that having not having to nail it every day. Yeah, but that's know right. that uh, on aggregate, yes, that everything, both sides are getting met to the level that I want to yeah. show up in. And I, and I don't think that more time means you're better actually either yeah because um, i've spent lots of time with them and i've been a worse dad at the time well especially if you're distracted thinking about something else that's the worst because you're present no you're, you're there but not present yeah so i think about so if i'm like i've got this 20 minutes i want to be there for that 20 minutes right yeah. and even if it's five minutes and she's just playing or he's just playing um and i actually just get to kind of engage with them that five minutes versus coming home being distracted kind of uh you know being there but not being there or even not even being there um, you know, give me the five minutes. Yeah. And so it's not for me about going, okay, because that's another rat race. That's another competition where it's just like whoever spent the most time is better. Um, again, not thinking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so easy as well to get distracted by all the chores that are around the house. But if you walk in and you see yeah. the kids are on their iPads or something yeah. and you sit down next to one of them yeah. and just ask them about the game, yeah. when you actually say, hey, should we put it away now? They've spent 10 minutes to explain it with you. It goes away without a single like, yeah. murmur. All right. Can I just turn this back on you for a second? <laughs> <laughs> so we're at this funny sort of stage. So, so uh, the kids are at the moment, they, they'll turn five sort of mid next year. Yeah. And I don't like hard and fast rules, but one of them that Elise and I seem to be on the same page on is screens. <laughs> um, and that's not about any screen. Yeah. It's actually about portable screens. Yeah. So our rule and the way we're thinking about it, and just I would love you to uh, <laughs> critique me on this, is you guys aren't going to have personal screens for a, for a fair while. Yeah. Um, but you can absolutely play games and stuff on the TV or whatever yeah. it is, but we're not going to give you the ability to take a screen and go somewhere. I couldn't agree more. I think okay. the longer, Terry, that you can put it off, yeah, the better, because we are on the other end of that. We've, like, we, we started out that way, and we did... I think we did a pretty good job because yeah. we didn't have... I had a work iPad, yeah. but it was never brought out. I think we used it on an international trip to the UK. Yeah. And so that was great for, you know, it's a long trip, you know, 24 hours of flying. What happened though was Annie's school oh. in year four dictated that every kid needed an iPad. Mm. And we're like, okay, that's cool. But we get to leave them at the school, don't we? And they're like, no, we don't want to take responsibility for them. And we're like, oh, whoa, that's hang, hard. hang on, hang on, hang on. And and the thing that we did wrong was we should have been a bit more forward thinking and gone, that's fine. So as soon as it comes home, comes out of the bag and gets put in the box, locked, mm. you know, put away. We should, If we'd have set that at the, the start, start. Yeah. it would have been so much easier yeah. because what happened was we got given a couple of other iPads from someone who didn't need them with their business anymore for the other two because Annie had hers. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... We've, we're, we're competing with this yeah. screen thing. Yeah. And they're, they're a bit older than yours. But I reckon, I mean, it's kids, they intuitively see how we run phones and God. stuff. Yeah. Then I don't think there's any way. I feel like the biggest hypocrite at well, times. So I'm like, oh. you can't have this. And here I am, bloody going <laughs> yeah. through my emails. I feel like, yeah. Totally, yeah. totally. But I think that's probably my one of my regrets mm. of just not managing that iPad thing better. And, you know, we're working on it now. We're figuring out ways and we're sitting down with them and putting together a plan. We've got an interesting juncture right now because Annie's starting senior school and all everyone at school apparently has phones. Yeah. And so we're around this yeah. conversation around, okay, so if you need a phone, the phone comes home and it goes in the box. Yeah. And there's no phone at home. Mm. And so we can restart, sort of reboot the mm. whole conversation around screens. Mm. And so that's the plan literally this week that we're, we're going through. So, I get the feeling that in the future it's going to be looked at like cigarettes. Like you guys uh, were letting your kids smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, because, uh, you know, we've kind of looked into a little around, uh, I guess, how the brain's building itself in those years. And look, these are just dopamine machines, yeah. right? And we all know we're all addicted to them. Yeah. Like let's not pretend we're not. But you give it, we're giving it to 10-year-olds. You know, like that, I feel like in the future we're going to be looking back going, what were you guys thinking? Yeah, I know. You know? It's, it's a real concern because on the flip side, people are saying, oh, you know, it's not even technology now because it's, made, it's, it's invented before they were born. It's just how the world is. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But we've still got this brain that we developed not to deal with things that have such addictive 
sort of mechanism baked into them. Like variable, people, it's all variable reward. Exactly. And like, there's no pro- difference between that and going in and playing the pokies. That is the same thing. And that's the thing that pops up on yeah. so many of the free games. It's like, oh, the game's free, but at least we've had the conversation with them. Why do you think it's free? And they're mm. like, ah, oh, I don't know. Maybe they're just nice. Yeah. Ah, and then we look at it and go, oh, look, there's a pokey wheel that pops up. Yeah. Why do you think they're doing that? And so we've had some really good conversations, and the kids can pick it now. Yeah. And they, they're sort of thinking through, well, who's, who's the product? What's the product here? Like, who, who's getting sold? And, and their, their attention is essentially getting sold. And, and so it's, it's a really, really interesting space. And I don't think there's a way to nail it. In fact, there absolutely isn't a way to nail it. But... I'm using Freedom. Uh, it's an app, and it literally just – you can actually just turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. and like Epic. It, it's what it does <laughs> is it like it basically just cuts off access to the internet on yeah. and all your apps. So you can basically say, and when I hit this button, there is no way that any of this stuff works. So you can click into it if you want, yeah. but it just says no connection. That's cool. And um, so what it does, it slowly weans you away from, yep. from that. So I do it on a Sunday at the moment, yeah. and, and I'm just like on a Sunday from like 8 a.m., through to like 6, p- 6 a.m., my phone doesn't work for all these functions. I, I did something similar. I flicked my screen to black and white. Black and white, yeah. And that worked really well too because yeah. then all of a sudden you don't see all the red alerts and everything. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, Sorry, man. I think I've <laughs> taken us on this tangent. No, no. It, this is this is completely <laughs> yeah. important, Terry. Yeah. Back to the question, back. though. You asked me about environment and like how we're teaching the kids about that's money. That's right. So I think, the, yeah, that, that's uh, the, the main thing is what I said before about what they see from us and what we model. And so we are, you know, we're doing our money mapping. We're doing all the practices we teach and all that sort of stuff. We're doing that in the open. And so that's number one. That's step number one. Um, Then step number two is actually where we start to create a little economy in the home. And this is interesting. My wife and I are still going back and forth on this. Uh, But I want to teach them how the economy works and how to game it before they get into it. Yeah. Because I wanted to know all this stuff straight away when I started earning money. And the big thing is that the only thing that makes you want money is that you have to pay taxes in it because it's backed by nothing. It means nothing. Yeah. So if you didn't have to pay taxes in the money, it probably wouldn't have anywhere as near as much meaning, right? Yeah. It's a clever way to make someone want a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, Because in reality, money didn't always work like that. Money was chosen by society, not given to us by a government. Yeah. And so it's a kind of a ninja trick where they say, (laughs) you want to live here, you got to pay taxes. And guess what? How do I pay taxes? Well, you got to earn this thing called money. Yeah. All right. So, so that's how I'm kind of thinking about showing the kids how it works. So I'm basically From saying a fundamental perspective. Yeah. So, and I, I don't know that this will work. I'm just this is what I'm kind of. Are you thinking of like at. creating your own currency within the home? An economy within the home. That's so, cool. <laughs> so what I'm thinking at is like, you know, if you want to live in Australia, you get all these privileges and you need to pay tax for these privileges, yeah. right? And so. What I'm gonna, what I'm kind of thinking about is saying, guys, we love you unconditionally. So when you live under our roof, you get all this stuff, and yeah. there's no cost to this because that's just our unconditional love. However, if you want all these other privileges that you get to enjoy, <laughs> this is taking dad tax to a, to- a totally new level. <laughs> yeah. So think about this, right? You love gymnastics or whatever it is. It's a privilege, mm. and so in order for you to enjoy that privilege, you need to earn it. And so it's it's going to be something along the lines of. Okay, cool. You can have all this stuff, um, but you owe me this much money every week as a tax for these privileges. And how do you pay the tax? You earn money. And how do I earn the money? The jobs that we want your help with around the house are how you earn the money. And so you kind of create that relationship. But also, it's not just that. It's also the fact that they can save and I give them an interest rate on their savings. So I say, and I'm going to show you how to get rid of all these jobs forever. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to show you how to do that. So if I can teach them how to game that game before they get into the real game. Yeah. Um, then, it's outcomes driven. Yeah. It's like, I don't care how the job gets done as yeah. long as it's done. And, and probably the other part of it too is that it's not just about earning money. It's also about making money. Yeah. So earning money is where you trade your time and your effort for something. Making money is where you create new value and capture it. So for example, I'll say, so look, you can earn money in all these ways and that's a very predictable way to pay the tax and have all these privileges. Okay, but you can also make money, and that's uncapped. So you just got to come up with ideas that you can actually convince me are worth paying for. Yeah. And so, for example, here's an idea for you: um, maybe you want to be you want to run a cinema in our household. 
okay? So what you're going to do is you're going to pick the film we're all going to watch. You're going to sell it to us. You're going to tell us why this is an awesome film. You're going to set up this whole environment where there's popcorn. You're going to create this whole thing, and you're going to charge us an entry fee. <laughs> I love it. Yeah? Yeah. And I'm going to pay you for that because I want to reward that ingenuity. The ex- experience is So better. I'm going to teach you how to make money before you leave the house. Yeah. And – also, it's this kind of nice thing of like where it's kind of fun, like the kids get to express themselves, try different things and be creative. Yeah. And so I feel like there's kind of a nice, uh, um, almost like a, an activity sort of adventure, sort of a bit of bonding that happens through that. And I can kind of teach them those concepts because I really wish that someone sat me down and told me the difference earlier on, right? Yeah. Earning money is trading your number one most valuable asset, which is time. You never get it back. You're trading it for money, but you can also make it. Yeah. And that's actually not linked to time. And so if a kid can get that, then they actually never have to trade all their time for money. You always start to think about, okay, cool, how, what's different ways that I can make it? Yeah. Um, and it's what I love about that too and what I love about business is that the business world punishes you for being selfish and it rewards you for being selfless because if it's not more value than the money, then you don't actually make a sale. And so that is actually what a transaction is when you think about mm. it, right? If I pay you for something, what I'm essentially saying is I value the thing you're doing for me more so than the money in my pocket. Yeah. And people don't understand that when it comes to, to money. Like money's a such a cool idea because in the absence of money, we actually can't be in that relationship. You know, you've got a distinct set of skills, okay? But what if I don't need your skills? Yeah. We can't trade directly. We need something that sits in the middle that allows us both to be able to, I guess, intermediate yeah, have, we'd have to find a third party exactly. or something like that to barter. Yeah, exactly otherwise. right. And everyone thinks, oh, going back to barter would be great. It actually sucked. No, because <laughs> not everyone wants a fish. Yeah. <laughs> and it was harder yeah. for you to actually get what you want, whereas with money, it's actually better because if I'm giving you the money, then we actually both get more of what we want. I get the thing you gave me and you get the thing I gave you. Mm. And it's an agreement between the two of us that, yeah, you want more of that, I want more of this, awesome job. That is wealth. That's mm. creating wealth. So if you can actually learn how to facilitate a transaction, you'll be right forever. Yeah. 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 It's not just, I don't think it's just about teaching kids how to save. No. I think it's teaching kids what money is. I, I heard a great example. I think it was Gordo Byrne. And he talked about how when he wanted to get a job, his dad actually said to him, hey, instead of getting a job, why don't you drive up to the hills, up to the watermelon farm oh, i know this story it's and, so good and find yeah. and, and find the farmer and say hey i want to buy a truckload of the watermelons that didn't quite make the cut yeah they're still fine but they've got you know marks on them and stuff buy that truckload bring it down to the town put up a sign in the in the car park and sell them yeah and he did that and it just he made more money in like one day i think it was a whole summer's than worth he would money. have yeah, yeah then he yeah. would have the whole summer yeah and so it just all of a sudden, it just reframed what money was, how to make money, and and what he could do with his time when he didn't have to work and get paid by the hour. That story is what actually made me come up with that idea of going, all right, I'll give you predictable sources of, re- of, of earning, and I'll also give you unpredictable, but a high, high payoff. Yeah. Um, it's actually that exact story <laughs> that, made me, that made me come to think about that. Yeah, I love it. Because um, I was like, man, my dad taught me that. Yeah, you know, because it's, it's actually a skill. Yeah. And you're learning, you're learning, you actually learn to be more selfless and actually to really put yourself in the shoes of the customer yeah. and understand what they want. Empathize with their yeah. needs and wants. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, just to close out, Terry, what are your thoughts around pocket money and how you're going to manage like that? I mean, obviously, you've got this economy going in the house. Mm. Actually, that is the question, isn't it, really, when you think about it? Yeah, so at any point in time, they can redeem. So all this will work on tokens, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. but they can redeem those tokens at any time for money. Yeah. And um, But I'm going to – I will give them an interest rate that makes that choice hard. Yeah. So you can have it now, but if you waited, it's going to be worth more tomorrow. And if you wait again, it's actually worth even more. Yeah. And so really kind of helping them with that sort of delayed gratification. And that is what's going to be different, I think, than, than our, actually how our economy works. Our economy is actually set up to make you spend. Yeah. Because you know that your money is going to be worth less tomorrow, which is stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's how we make it work. You're like, no. Uh, it actually didn't used to work like that. Actually, in a world where your money was worth more tomorrow, that's yeah. actually when all of our best inventions happened. Yep. The, the inventions that this world runs on happened because the Wright brothers, who were, by the way, bike salesmen, 
saved money. The money actually bought them more. They were secure, secure enough to then actually use that money to go and have this harebrained idea of creating all these different ways of trying to figure out how to make flight happen. And that's how we got flight. Yeah. And you ask, you find one bike salesman today that's thinking, I'm going to set some money aside and in the future, I'm going to make a big bet. <laughs> I guarantee you that's not happening because everyone's just going, how do I pay the bills? Yeah. You know? That's right. So we're in this kind of system that incentivizes us to spend. And what we're trying to do is transcend that. Yeah. Um, and once you know the game, you can stop playing it though. That's right. Yep. Love it. Yeah. Terry. I love your work. What <laughs> you and Ryan man. are doing is fantastic. So I'll put all the links in the show notes so people can follow up with you. But where do you suggest they start? Yeah, I'll just check out the podcast of ours, I guess. Because the first 10 episodes are yeah. essentially a course, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we, we were pretty deliberate about that, saying it's not going to be a collection of ideas. It's going to be a f- an end-to-end journey that you take. And our sort of promise is, like, if you get to the end of those 10 episodes – you know way more than most Aussies will ever know, yeah. and you are ready to start taking action, being dangerous. Yeah, love it. All right, so let's get amongst it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mate. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for listening. If you're in the frame of mind to reset your own finances, I strongly recommend you check out the first 10 episodes of the Passive Income Project podcast. It takes you on a guided 360-degree tour of how to think about your money, and I reckon it could inspire you to change things up a bit, especially if you're feeling like you're not necessarily acing things in the finance department. I've put links to the podcast and all the books Terry and I mentioned in this conversation in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If you'd like to get alerts when each episode is released in future, you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter on the website too. Well, that's about it from me for now. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs> <laughs>